Hello, and welcome back to Online Education Across the Atlantic, and it's great to be here with Glenda Morgan and Neil Mosley again. And before we get to the news, Neil, i got to put you on the spot. Have you made any progress in getting them to change the Leeds Conference to where we can do a live podcast production in Leeds sometime this summer? You know what? I failed miserably. You've really put me on the spot there because I said I was going to contact them about that and see what was happening, but I haven't. I've been, my excuse is it's half term here. So that's kind of the break for schooling for a week. Um, and I've been away. So that's my, <laughs> that's my excuse. But uh, n- the short answer is no. I, I, okay. I, I haven't. <laughs> well, then, uh, then we'll redirect this towards Margaret. Margaret, if you listen to the podcast, uh, here's some pressure to get the podcast rescheduled just for the benefit of myself and Morgan. I think that's what's important here. Yeah. 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 Cut out the lousy middleman and go direct is what I'd say. <laughs> but half term, good time uh, going on vacation other than being sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So had a bit of a nasty cold and still got the remnants of that. But uh, yeah, we went up to Yorkshire, which is where I'm from. So that was lovely to see see family up there and have a bit of a change of scenery. So yeah, very nice. Not not particularly hot and sunny, but beautiful in its grey and rainy way, I think yeah. is how I'd put it. <laughs> well, speaking of hot and sunny, how's Salt Lake City treating you, Morgan? It's 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 a lot like like Yorkshire. Last summer when I was still living in Arizona in Tucson and the and the summer was awful. It was a summer from hell. It felt like somebody had opened the gates of hell and, and the heat was just pouring out. And I, I was staying by myself at the moment because my spouse was already in Salt Lake City. So I was watching a lot of British TV, which I do by myself. And I was watching a lot of British TV sit in Yorkshire as it happens. And I remember having this incredibly palpable sense of, oh, I want to be there because it was all rainy and cloudy. <laughs> and, and, and it's that now in Salt Lake City. It's a long way of getting there in my usual fashion. <laughs> Well, to commiserate with you guys, this weekend in Arizona or this past weekend was the WM Phoenix Open, which was really making the news this year for, it basically became the fire festival of golf tournaments, mud, drunks, uh, sort of a disaster. And unfortunately, uh, I had eight tickets over three days and we only used one of them. It just was (laughs) such a wreck. But part of the reason, I mean, part of the reason was it just went over the top with drunks. But the other reason was it was so cold and rainy. So I think we all shared a nice cold and rainy time over the past week. I I wonder if I'm having an influence on you because it's, you know, it's a British pastime to talk about the weather, but we've kind of begun the podcast talking about it. So I don't know whether, you know, this is something that happens in the US, but this is this is this is going to go down so well with British listeners, I think, talking about the weather at the start. Talk colonialism is what's happening here. Hey, well, uh, uh, so today we're doing the second in sort of a mini series that we did that we started last week where we wanted to talk about, let's take a step back and say, what's the state of online and digital education right now? What are we seeing? Let's sort of reset ourselves. Last week, we looked more at the product, what providers are offering, particularly around sub-degree micro-credentials. Today, what we want to do is really explore in a deeper level the the demand side, um, using enrollments as signals. Like, what are we seeing on student demand and interest, particularly in online education? And what does that tell us about moving forward? So we're going to be exploring that. But before we do that, 
and maybe it, it is on the same topic. Like, let's cover some of the news items. I don't know if you guys had looked at it, but uh, IBM made the news twice in one day, one level because they're roughly 100 years old this week, and it was a celebration of IBM. Uh, on the same day, there was a story out of New York City where New York City, they missed the weather forecast. They had forecast a lot more snow. They ended up getting three inches of snow. But citywide, it was, okay, emergency remote teaching. So if you have this uh, bad feeling about the old uh, COVID test, here's another one. Emergency remote teaching. 900,000 students were asked to go work on virtual classes during the storm. Well, first of all, the storm didn't really hit that hard. It wasn't a big issue. But second of all, there were tens of thousands of students who could not get into their classes. And we're talking K-12 here, students who can't handle it the same way as colleges and universities. And essentially, the blame was a student authentication identity management system that IBM did for the city. So basically, IBM help prevent, uh, I think the estimate was 60 or 70,000 students in New York City from succeeding in remote learning. So it was a disaster. And it was interesting to me that it was IBM who was involved here. I mean, it used to be you never get fired for hiring IBM. I wonder if that's changed. But it's also interesting, the fact that this emergency remote teaching reared its ugly head again and uh, certainly didn't help the reputation of that as well. And I don't know if you guys had read any about that or if it's surprising to you what happened. No, I hadn't read, but it makes me think actually about um, some of the stories. And and I I, I think I listened to a podcast on this, which was actually about the idea that, you know, with online learning and virtual classrooms and all of those kinds of technologies, the the snow day for school children is 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 kind of going to be lost so i hadn't really followed the story but it was just kind of that there's been a few pieces i think and uh, uh, talking around that kind of idea and that kind of joy of missing school because of the weather that is 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 somehow now you know not so much an option because of you know what technology we have that's available it was interesting. I saw some articles. I checked in Boston because I used to live north of Boston in Newburyport, and I was seeing what was happening there. And even more than New York City, they got almost no snow. And you had a lot of uh, parents complaining in that uh, in the Boston Herald, uh, basically saying, what happened to snow days? It was essentially where you're asking, why don't you just let the kids off and to go play in the snow? What's wrong here? Why are we even trying to do this? So you're not alone in that thought. Yeah, look, I as an advocate for online learning, I kind of I'm also an advocate for snow days as well. I feel like we need to find a happy medium there somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just remembering the the days long 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 ago when I was in high school in in Zimbabwe and we got the day off when Prince Charles got married. <laughs> you don't get that anymore either. <laughs> yeah. That is true. First marriage. Well, <laughs> yeah, could you be specific here? So another news story that's coming up and it's growing, and quite honestly, I'm curious to see if this translates across uh, the Atlantic. Part of the purpose of the show is to get outside of the U.S. bubble. But the Biden administration, U.S. Department of Education, uh, look like they want to essentially shut down the inclusive access model where publishers uh, provide more of an institutional purchasing 
for students to have their their textbooks and they have it from day one. That's the idea behind it. The problem with it is there's a transparency question, like are you actually letting students know about this new model and are you giving them a chance to opt out and get their textbooks in another way, not just have it bundled in with their tuition bill. But what's actually coming out in the regulations or the discussions around it is not just let's just put some guardrails, but let's get rid of inclusive access. And it's huge. And part of the reason I bring this up is uh, McGraw-Hill just was reporting that they had a 26% increase in their billings behind inclusive access over the past year. The point being, this is where most college textbook publishers are banking their business and they're getting tremendous growth. I was on X or Twitter, so I had to do a snarky comment. I think it's part of the user agreement. But I had said, this is why they're taking a sledgehammer to inclusive access. It's not really about transparency. It's about we can't let publishers get away with this. But I guess to start out with, Neil, does this story even translate outside of the U.S. into purchasing model for textbooks and bundling with intuition? No, I don't think it really does in quite the same way, really, in terms of the kind of bundling. Um, it's an interesting idea. And I think, I guess it's interesting around, you know, what you've spoken about before around the kind of political administration's tackling of outside agents, shall we say, or the kind of private sector, I, I suppose. But no, it's it's hard to draw uh, kind of comparison over, over here, really, around that kind of thing. I suppose... We, where we might get kind of closest is around kind of maintenance loans and, and things like that, but it doesn't quite work in the same way from what I understand over there. But it, yeah, it just sounds like more of a squeeze from of the private sector really in, uh, in the US, I think. Is that your interpretation? I think that's my interpretation of why they're using a sledgehammer instead of just putting up some guardrails to make improvements. But I don't think it's what created the whole issue, but the approach that's being taken, I think, is very much gently stated, uh, a squeeze on the private sector. There might be other terminology. But Morgan, are you surprised at all with how this story is developing and how much it's really a U.S. story? I mean, based on our N of one, trying to get an international perspective this morning. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised it's a U.S. story because it just seems like the textbook situation is just different here compared to other kinds of places. It seems to be much less of an issue in other situations. So I'm not surprised it's a, it's a U.S. story. You know, something that we've been tossing about is like, unfortunately, in some of the some of the sledgehammeriness that they've taken, they've also knocked out some unintentional things. So some places have... Uh, open educational resources programs that have also gotten swept up in these. So they're trying to provide free or low, very, very low cost services to students in an in a all-encompassing way and, and gather a bit of money to do that because it's not without cost and, and these have gotten swept up in that. So it's, it's you know, your typical unintended consequences thing. I think 2023 and 2024 in higher education in the U.S. is the it's not the year of living dangerously. It's the year of unintended consequences. Yes. Yep. I think uh, for all of our listeners, you just heard a, uh, a tease for an upcoming newsletter post or two. Yes. Um, <laughs> actually, I know that's true. So, well, 
I, I know you've been on vacation. Anything, any newsworthy things happening in education in the half term in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things probably um, was kind of announced today, which was just um, a decline in in applications for for kind of universities, kind of third year in a row, really, for, for kind of undergraduates and a drop in the um, application rate for 18-year-olds. So I think generally the the demographic kind of predictions is that the 18 year old population is kind of growing. And so if there's a drop in the application rate, kind of number of applications from the kind of base population for universities, and that's not good indicator of demand for, for university places in the time when that, you know, arguably should be going up rather than going down. So there's kind of year on year decreases in total number of applications and application rate. So there's kind of some anxiety really on the back of that around the demand for university here in the UK. And obviously, you know, given all of the financial troubles that are being experienced. So this kind of data comes on the back of we have a sort of a central uh, university colleges and admissions service in which all the applications go through. And there's a January deadline where the majority of applications are received. Um, and so this is data that comes at the end of that cycle on on how things have how things have gone. So big headlines around you know questions around demand there was a, a i think a, a decrease in kind of mature student applications that sounds judgmental by the way but i'll, I'll go with it yeah yeah I mean, that's, yeah yeah that's that's the official terminology i'm not kind of riff, i'm not kind of riff, okay. i'm not kind of riffing so um, <laughs> uh, i just want to put that on record a big decrease. I think it was over fifty percent decrease in uh, applications from Nigeria, um, and some interesting things around you know subjects. So STEM doing well, medicine and kind of areas like nursing doing less well. So you know a few little positive things, but mainly you know a bit worrying around the demand for UK higher education going forward, um, and lots of kind of discussion around. Uh, factors for that cost of living but also you know one factor being the kind of government the almost kind of constant government doing down of higher education can hardly be good for the brand really but hold on hold on you said something extraordinary in there you said the end of january was the deadline for all these applications <laughs> this yeah. seems like an extraordinary situation i think you should have a floating deadline that that you know will happen sometime in april or may or maybe never um, yeah, but we'll give you a one or two day notice whenever we change uh, the deadlines. That's the other benefit. We're being Fair snarky enough. about. Fair that. I'll I'll um I'll pass it on to you, Kat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're envious that you have a stable application process and application deadline. That's what I think we're trying to say. Maybe that's the good news. Yeah. Well, it's just like last week I complimented the Office for Students and I was told I might be the only person complimenting them. But uh, here's another compliment. Yeah, there you go. You know, all of the all of the higher education institutions are getting praise from over the Atlantic. I mean, you know, maybe they should set up base there and they get a little bit more love, maybe. Yeah. Well, speaking of Atlantic, one of our listeners wrote in to basically say that we're that we're being too Atlantic centric. That's the wrong pond to look at that we should also consider what's happening in australia and uh, i guess that's a lake instead of a pond uh, given a lot bigger but morgan i know you started looking at some enrollment data in australia any 
interesting things that you're seeing from that from an initial view? And again, I know, realize this will probably come up in a post, but any light you can share from Australia? Yeah, I mean, it does seem that, that, that online has been growing there. And just early this morning, I was taking an additional look. So there's some nice resources. So expect to see more from us adding to that. And then somewhat in our defense also, and in part prompted by the, the Australian comment uh, over the weekend, I did take a look at some growth or an expansion of online offerings in India, actually, which for a long time has been sort of slow off the mark in that regard. And there's been a lot of legislation that's been confusing for institutions, but the Jawaharlal Nehru University is starting to offer online full-credit programs. Coursera's inked two deals with IIT Rookie and OP Jindal. The IIT Rookie one is, and and another one of the IITs as well, I think Hyderabad. And it's, you know, what's notable about those is that they're they're publics. But yeah, no, so so certainly, you know, it does look like there's growth in online in, in a number of different places, both like in Australia, which I think of as being uh, to use, you know, that mature market, you know, because because of the distances involved, it's it's been doing online for a long time, but also in newer places like like India. So I think there's a lot of interesting action. But look, look out for some more content in the newsletter. Well, with that uh, segue, uh, I'll treat it as into our main topic about where what is the state of demand. But I will point out, we love hearing from our listeners. We love hearing from you and we do want to explore topics that are important to you, or you can interpret this as that we're very impressionable and little nudges get us scampering away when you tell us tell us to look at different things. But with that, I'd like to turn it over to Morgan so we can get more of a deep dive into demand, particularly around online education and what we're seeing today. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Phil. And, and I think it's really interesting to look just specifically at the demand side, because there is often quite a, a bit of a distinction there. For example, I, I learned this week, and I knew the number was high, but I learned this week that we have 850 online MBAs in the United States. <laughs> and I wonder what the connection is between demand and supply. I knew I knew that the, the supply was high. I didn't realize it was that high. But another thing also got me thinking, and to think about, is is the demand changing? Are we having different kinds of students interested in studying online? And and again, I was reading an, another interesting piece that looked at the changing age demographics of students interested in going online, which is getting younger and younger and younger. You know, a lot more students in that 18 to 24, 25-year-old age category are, are now going online. Whereas before, I think there was a tendency to think of it to use... Neil's phrase, the mature student, or as we would, <laughs> as we might call it, the non-traditional, post-traditional student, which is a, a phrase some folks are, are are using. So, are you guys seeing that as well, especially in the UK? And and what do you think are some of the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, it's always a challenge around that kind of information because those things aren't always tagged to well, they aren't tagged to online education. So. It would be more of kind of anecdotal indicators on that kind of thing. I would say that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me to see the the kind of age bracket go down in terms of online learning. And, you know, there has been uh, the growth in online 
students at undergraduate level in the UK has really been centred on the kind of domestic UK student. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the age range is is, is kind of getting getting lower or getting younger, but it may kind of hint at, hint at that. But in the UK, it's, there's not any really strong signals around what's happening in respect to that. I mean, I think in terms of undergraduate and kind of postgraduate more generally, there's maybe a kind of greater proportion for the official data that we have, so up to 21, 22, of kind of an older bracket of students, so 25 to 29, 30 plus kind of great great proportion increasing there and for postgraduate 25 to 29 is kind of where there's been kind of the biggest growth so we're kind of hamstrung a little bit in terms of the data to really know whether we're seeing kind of demographic shift around age but you know my general feeling across all the work that I do and the people that I speak to and the things that I observe is that you know I do think online is is as a lot more acceptable to a lot broader swathe of, of people. But, you know, obviously that doesn't necessarily mean that the kind of demographics in terms of age is, is getting younger or not. It's hard, hard to know, hard to know, really. And, and speaking of data, I mean, like, we, you know, we look at the iPad data system in the U.S. and the National Student Clearinghouse tends to give much more updated current term enrollment. So in the spring, like in another two months, we'll get initial estimates of enrollment for spring of 2024, but they don't tend to break it out by modality, you know, online versus face-to-face, which means we're relying on data that's from 2022. It's at least a year, 12 to 18 months out of date. The signals, and I like the fact we're talking about signals, that are more up-to-date, one, are publicly traded companies. So recently, we mentioned Coursera. They had their earnings, and they are international. This is not all U.S., but in their degrees segment, I believe they said that their enrollment went up, I think it was 8 to 10% increase from year over year. Grand Canyon Education, which is an OPM provider for Grand Canyon University and several other schools, their online enrollment went up 10% year over year. And then I saw an article, Community College of Aurora in Colorado, that their online enrollment is going up. I think we're getting a lot of data signals saying at post-pandemic in 2022 was sort of the pivot year into post-pandemic, that what we're seeing now is a really strong growth in online learning. And it's happening at the same time, like you mentioned, Neil, about the application data. Overall enrollments still look troubling. But online enrollments, I'm seeing increased demand. And I, in my view, it's structural. It, a lot of the increase that we're seeing really are new students or new student types being interested in online learning. So I do think it's shifting. And when I hear, like you mentioned, that it's younger students, I think a part of what you're seeing is people just appreciate, and COVID had an enormous impact here. I like doing things from home. I like fitting school into my life as opposed to being forced to go on campus. So a very long-winded way to say all the signals I'm seeing, or most of the signals I'm seeing, are a material increase. And yes, I am seeing it to be not just what we used to think of online, but changes age, undergraduate versus graduate. There's 
a lot of changes going on in my mind. Yeah, I, I think I think there's economic factors as well, isn't there? You know, there's been lots of stuff in the UK around undergraduate students having to, you know, having to work in a more substantial way than they have done previously. I, th- I think I, I, they may be an increasing kind of commuter students or students who are living at home, but kind of commuting in to university. So I think that's a factor as well. And I think in terms of the kind of cost of living pressures, I think often I find maybe the private providers or the private companies or the OPMs are a bit more sensitive around price than universities directly. And therefore, given that they can also usually spend a lot more on kind of marketing, you know, I think that's also also a factor. I don't know that universities in the UK, based on the position that they're in, are going to move massively on price around online undergraduate degrees in the, in the same way, really. So I think, you know, economics plays a part in all of this too and the kind of current situation that we certainly we find ourselves in the UK for sure. You described very much what Grand Canyon CEO said on the conference call, that exact point about economics and about how that seems to be pushing more working students, but those towards lower priced options, the way he described that would be community colleges and schools like Grand Canyon. He obviously has a reason to push that, but he very much echoed your sentiment that economics and lower students looking for lower prices is a part of the increase they're seeing. And I I was going to make a point, and it's a tough one to make, but you know I think we're also seeing a shift in the kind of students going, you know, or, or growth at least in the number of perhaps less well-prepared students going online, which I think is part of that shift. It also raises a risk in the sense, you know, we, we, we get the word predatory flung around here, <laughs> you know, a, a lot. But, you know, I think it's, it's, it's part of that expansion. And it'd be fun to try and figure out how to actually measure some of that in terms of our different kinds of students going online now. But, you know, I, th- I think it's sort of part of that. My view on that general thing is, rising demand, but that doesn't necessarily translate into, hey, it's going to be the glory days for the suppliers. I mean, part of it is there's rising demand, but you need even more student support services than you had before. So one doesn't equal the other necessarily. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because kind of tie this into what I was saying earlier around the kind of application data there's there's a sense in which kind of universities are going to have to really focus much more closely on kind of continuation and getting people through degrees if the kind of you know the demand is is kind of weaker and so there's that kind of going on in the wider sector but then there's also you know the aspect of online where you know there are there is a kind of perception that the challenges are kind of harder around that kind of thing. So I think there's a convergence of a couple of things there that kind of demand universities have to be smarter and better around the way that they support students. And I think, you know, my perception and my experience has been that student support generally is a bit too reactive in universities. And I think be interesting to see, I'm already seeing little signs of this, for um, on campus but be interesting to see how that evolves into a more of a proactive kind of model I was chatting to someone I know who'd done it who was doing an online degree and they were talking about this kind of idea of student success coaches which is really unfamiliar to them having worked in a university but you know that kind of 
that kind of model and that kind of approach where it is a bit more proactive. Um, I think potentially it's just going to be have to be more important, not just for online, actually, but for, for on campus as well. It'd be interesting to see the shifts in that. Yeah, the problem with a lot of asynchronous courses is it took its extreme form in the MOOC. But the problem with a lot of asynchronous courses is that is that they're modeled on the gym model, when, whereas what you need is more of a personal trainer or at least part of a personal trainer. <laughs> When we're talking student support, particularly around online education, because hey, we got to stick to the title of the podcast, it's not just academic support. So when we're saying student support, and in particular, Morgan, where you're saying, hey, it's it, it's attracting more and more students who need support, socioeconomics, age, whatever the case may be, a lot of that support that's needed is just simply life support, financial support the proactive checking, hey, we've noticed you haven't been on, you know, in your course lately, anything going on. So it's it's broad student support. And we've talked about that certainly in the US forever, but I think right now it's coming down to almost a make or break. If you want to offer a successful program, you're gonna get the opportunity for more and more students, but you better be prepared to support them. And I think that this gives us another shot. I remember years ago having a conversation with the president of Maricopa County Community Colleges, and he always used to say that his students were one flat tire away from 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 dropping out. <laughs> um, you know, and 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 now if you're online, the flat tire doesn't matter so much, but there's still just a lot of things. So it gives us an opportunity to sort of address those yeah those life supports, those how to study kinds of supports and, and and those kinds of things, I think, which is key. Yeah. But if I just had to sum it up, and I let me ask us a question. Online demand, in my mind, and what I'm hearing from you guys and what we've seen anecdotally is, is absolutely increasing post-pandemic. It is not a matter of, oh, people are sick of emergency remote Zoom University, and therefore it had its chance and it's gone away. That's just not happening. And in my mind, it's also true that the demographics are changing. But let's test ourselves. Higher education is not a monolith. What are the contrary signals or what's the biggest counter argument to what the three of us are saying right now? Are there, if we're wrong, what's going to be the reason we're wrong about this increasing true demand from students for online? I can jump in there, and but it was sort of a nebulous idea. And I had this conversation with a, a major person who was running an online unit, and we were sort of talking about there's a weird sort of backlash that's going on, both from a a more conservative kind of perspective, plus, but, but also from a more liberal kind of perspective, if you've got to put... But, but, you know, it's linked to politics, so that's why those sort of two things come in there. It's like, oh, no, we must get back to college. You know, we must get back to campus, you know, in a way to to get over that emergency remote teaching blip in, uh, in history. So I think there's sort of like a weird way that those two political sides have come together about, you know, no, campus is the best thing and you need to go there for different reasons. So I think that's one, you know, it's countervailing the the acceptance of online degrees. It's countervailing the, the the growth and interest and the expansion. That would be one thing. Yeah, to pick up on that, I'm not totally convinced by this, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. But it, I think it's just the idea of maybe backlash against technology sounds a bit a bit strong, but I think. It, this kind of idea, that kind of idea, sorry, has been kind of on my mind a little bit around ed tech in general 
um, and around some of the topics that we discussed around innovation or a lack thereof. Um, <clears throat> and it's the sense in which I, I, sometimes when I speak, I kind of um, put up a quote from a uh, Rob Reich, I think a Stanford professor, who was basically saying a few years ago that all of the advantages of a kind of digital life have been, you know, have, have, have kind of arrived and now we're just seeing the harms. And so, you know, obviously it's, it's an extreme kind of idea, but that's one potential aspect of, you know, you were saying, Phil, post-COVID, we like being at home, you know, we like that kind of flexibility. And so, you know, there's maybe a sense in which people may be evaluating that lifestyle in relation to online study. Like that's potentially one thing that may that may be kind of an answer to your question. But I'm struggling outside of that, really, because I see greater acceptance and I, I see the kind of signals pointing um, in the way that you describe Phil. So yeah, it was, it feels slightly contrived to find something really, but that was the one thought that I had really. Also, I, I can't ignore the softball sitting out there, legislation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so, and I don't know if this is exactly what you're saying, but I mean like predatory, there is the predatory argument. The reason we've seen this increase is because of all of this excess spending on marketing and we're tricking all of these poor little non-mature students. And in that case, I meant it more descriptive because that's really the view that students don't have agency. They're getting tricked into going into online. And so as 2U collapses, as the regulations are, are really targeting a lot of innovation and a lot of OPM activity, that what you're going to see is that cuts out the predatory activity and therefore the true demand will go down. I obviously don't believe that, but I do want to call it out. I don't know if that's a softball you're referring to, but it is essentially, I think, a lot of the argument behind the regulatory activity that's going on right now. So that's the biggest public argument against this rising demand that I'm aware of. I mean, the other thing that might cause us to be wrong in a kind of a way is if other providers get into the space much more and and start providing it in a different kind of a way so non-higher ed providers actually it's like okay let's let's provide it to you in a way that sort of makes sense but that wouldn't that's that wouldn't be decreasing demand it just would be bad news for the suppliers right I think there's something in here and maybe I'm taking this on a different direction but there's something on here about perception of demand amongst the universities because I see a number of universities and have done for a number of years here in the UK who've set particular targets either publicly or privately around the number of online students that they want to reach and on some occasions it feels quite unrealistic and when you basically you join them all up together well, you know how can x number of universities reach this level in the in the time that they've set themselves based on you looking at the market I, you know although we talked about demand increasing i'm I, i'm not seeing demand surging to that level to be able to say look the fields are ripe under harvest kind of thing for online students so to speak we don't have that here all our universities are very rational and uh and, and reasonable and, and actually understated. Nobody says, oh, we want to we we beach a, a million students with the, with the MOOC core. Yeah. <laughs> well, I even take the Project Kitty Hawk example that we've talked about. That's essentially started out as an internal OPM for let's get all the universe, public universities in North Carolina 
working together and we'll do our own internal OPM and instead of paying a third uh, party, a provider to do this. And the initial estimates were like within a couple of years, 20 new programs, 100,000 new students. And with that, it's not just that universities tend to overstate it. I think it's getting to that point you're saying there's so many doing it with unrealistic expectations. So in the Project Kitty Hawk case, there just was no way to meet what was promised in the legislature that made all the news on what was happening. Now, I believe that they're doing a pivot internally with Project Kitty Hawk, and we're going to, another hint for articles coming up, I'm waiting for their public reporting that's happening at the end of this month. But even if they've internally changed their perspective and what's happening, and I think you'll see that in the news, that doesn't mean the legislature, that doesn't mean the news media outlets, it doesn't mean students are going to perceive it that way. They might perceive it as, up oh, online was a hype. P- people said it would grow, and this is a maybe not a failure, but this is a disappointment. And so it's sort of that public sentiment that there's so much expectation of surging and unrealistic attitudes quite often is that the perception is going to be anti-online, even if what's really happening is a healthy but steady increase. Something I'd like to dig into, though, also just in terms of uh, we'd be describing demand as, as going and and we, we tend to associate that, like historically, I think right now, the last burst, at least of of demand around STEM subjects, you know, and very work-oriented kinds of of topics. Do you think that will continue? I mean, I see it. Well, as you get more of a shift into undergraduate, it's not as specific in that case, right? With graduate, you do have programs, but a lot of undergraduate is just help me get my coursework. And I think that naturally expands for dilutes the STEM participation in online education. So from that standpoint, I do think it's moving beyond there. And, and and for those on the other side of the Atlantic, in the United States, you have to do all kinds of different topics in your, even if you're majoring in mathematics, you've got to do English and history and all these things in as an undergrad, which you don't have to do in the UK. That's how we're so well-rounded. Yeah, I was, I, you just beat me to that, Phil. <laughs> I took well-rounded being well-rounded literally (laughs) I now mostly resemble a ball (laughs) but it has nothing to do with my education yeah that's interesting I was just struck last week as I was going through OPM data about contracts and and what what subjects they were on and there was a heck of a lot of non-STEM kinds of things there so that was sort of interesting yeah I I think there's a bit more movement around the kind of programs but I you know in terms of OPMs it's still quite narrow really in terms of the number of programs I think they'd look to get up to and I kind of the the titles there but I I think I've spoken and done a bit of research around just like an increasing array of kind of subjects being taught online and that's not to say that there's real growth across all areas, but it's just to say that there's kind of been more moves in areas that just haven't been associated and they're, they're marginal, but they're still, they represent, you know, a bit wider spectrum of subjects being taught online. But I still think the ones that are associated with online the most are the ones that, um, you know, are growing most rapidly. 
Well, I think there's sort of a, another supplier problem, higher education institutions for the most part, and for a degree, certainly, that in the past, part of what you people recommended is be strategic. And we've given that uh, advice ourselves. Figure out which programs make sense, where you can make it self-sustaining or grow. And it's almost like you can pick and choose. As I'm listening to us talk about it, part of the conversation is uh, the the demand is growing, but it's messier and broader based and changing demographics. And so some of this, you can't just pick and choose quite the same way that maybe you could five years ago. You need to jump in there and understand more of where the demand is. And quite often that'll be in nebulous areas, increasing support. So again, a lot of this points to a lot of growth, but not necessarily easy for institutions on how to deal with the growth moving forward. Yeah, and I, I, but I think some of the part of the strategic thing, Phil, is also universities not just pursuing the most common suite of, say, postgraduate master's programs, and obviously, obviously being cognizant of kind of developments in other areas that you talked about, but also being cognizant cognizant of their strengths I think that's really important you know you see universities who maybe partner with an OPM put a bunch of programs in more typical areas that they're not necessarily that strongly associated with and I think as the as the space kind of proliferates you know that that difference that point of difference and I've, I've certainly seen universities that have done this but you, you kind of also have to understand your own strengths in navigating demand and you know, maybe growth across a more varied suite of subjects for online too, as part of that strategic piece. A few years ago, I, I used a slide in a presentation I was doing on online, the expansion of online, and it was kids, eight-year-old kids playing soccer or football, you know, and they all crowd around the ball and then the ball shoots out, and then they all run and follow the ball. And that sort of, I, I, I was really proud of that slide because I think it sums up what a lot of institutions are doing in terms of they all crowd around data science and then business analytics and things like that. And they tend to offer the same kinds of things, as you said, the sort of same suite of things and, and they need more variation. But a quick question is international online still going to be a really small part of, of, of the demand or is is it going to grow? And it seems like the Canadian, the Australian and the British government seem to be doing their best to make it grow. But are they going to be successful in this? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's challenges there around things like pricing, but I suppose as, you know, maybe middle classes grow in certain countries and I think that's that's going to be more more viable and more appealing i i suppose the short answer is i think that that market is still going to be challenging for for different reasons you know price sensitivity being one of those one of those things but you know to your point morgan given the government positions on international students actually coming to the host country then you know i i universities are going to have to seek to find ways in which you know they can attract students online and there there has been for international postgraduate online, um, there's been uh, there's been growth there in the UK. So there are there are options there, and there are um, universities in the UK who have kind of more of a franchise arrangements with online providers who can get into particular geographies. So there's there's one that kind of targets kind of students in Africa around online learning that some universities in the UK work with. So I, I think it's in the UK the domestic market for 
postgraduate and for undergraduate online has been the one that's kind of grown more rapidly in recent years i think there is there is scope but whether it will the extent to which it'll grow is going to be hard because of the you know just the variety and the different factors i would say in the u.s it's some similar answer from my perspective in that I think there are opportunities. Uh, Morgan and I just both talked to somebody from Beacon Education recently, and they do that, but more on the um, Asian student population. And I think there are definitely opportunities. However, I don't think that's the driver of the online demand that we're talking about. Most of the driver of the online demand are domestic students. So it doesn't rule out the possibility of that really growing outside, but that's not what's behind maybe not the surge, but the growth that we're seeing. Yeah. And I was sort of thinking of, of international students coming and taking the same programs as domestic rather than those franchise programs, which are growing. Yep. Well, are we hitting the time where normally Morgan will be holding up her watch or holding up a piece of paper at us? <laughs> yeah, or just leaving the room, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if she was coming back from that one. I've, I've had it with you guys. It's time to... <laughs> Well, this is good. Yeah, and I I enjoy. Glad, hopefully, you guys excuse me for throwing that curveball in there, but like we're all agreeing so much on the growing demand for online and the changing demographics. I just wanted to think like, let's come up with some contrary points of view. So I, I didn't feel like our hearts were in them, but at least it was good to get them out on the table and talk about the contrary points of view. But thanks for the conversation. Thank you for all of our listeners. Keep sending us requests and we will continue to be insecure and respond to whatever you send us or a lot of what you send us. On to next week. Mm-hmm.